You're listening to Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Today we are continuing our series. We're in week two of a four-week series. Um, Last week was kind of the preview week um, where we cast some vision for the year 2019 that we are going to be a congregation that engages discipleship, meaning we're going to do whatever it takes to take the next step in our faith. So, for example, very base level, if you have never read the Bible before, then perhaps the very first step you take to engage your faith is to put your hands on the Bible or the digital format, which is totally acceptable as well, and open it up and read, right? And maybe even if you only read it 10 times this year, you have done more to engage your faith this year than you did last year. That is something to be excited about. We want to celebrate all of the ways that we can engage our faith. So um, last week, we talked about three specific things that we're going to be doing this year. We're going to be intentionally working on. We're going to be engaging our discipleship by becoming members of the church, not just casual attenders, not just I like this church, not just I'll go here some Sunday and there another Sunday. But we encourage Christ followers to become part, committed parts, of a local body of believers. So we're going to engage church membership this year. Another way that we talked about is that we are going to engage group life. It is really hard to be intimately known and pray for all the needs of everybody, right? But when we get in small groups together, 10, 12, 15 people, and you know each other's kids' names and pets' names and favorite foods and quirks and all these kinds of things, you begin to develop this great relationship with one another and an intimacy and fellowship in the body. And that is what we're looking for. So we're going to engage group life this year. The other thing that we want to engage is one-on-one discipleship. Going behind someone in the faith who says, I've been where you are. Let me take you by the hand and walk with you this walk of faith. I will lead you towards a closer walk with Jesus. I will help you be accountable. And then beyond that, you turn around behind you and you find someone and grab their hand and say, I will help you. And it doesn't necessarily mean you've been through a whole lot in your life. It just might mean that you actually read the Bible every day and that person doesn't and they want to and you can encourage each other there, right? So these are the ways that we are planning on engaging in 2019. The rest of this month is spent on fleshing that out a little bit more. Today, we're going to look at church membership. It seems to be a dirty word in our culture, church membership. I don't want to belong. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. I don't want to have um, responsibility. I want my comfort. I want to be able to back away if I want to. I don't want anybody telling me I've sinned. I don't want um, any accountability. I want to live the life the way that I like living it. But I also want to come to church on Sunday and praise Jesus. And the two don't really coexist biblically together. So today we're going to look at biblical church membership why it's biblical and why it's good for you and the glory of god and so um we're going to read uh, a chunk of scripture this morning um because i think the whole context of it is very good it is mostly one full chapter of uh colossians um so if you want to flip to i don't have it on the screen if you want to flip to um i lost my place that's okay New Testament's fairly easy to flip to. If you want to flip to the book of Colossians um, and, uh, and stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able to stand for the entire reading of the chapter, great. If not, do your best. And if you just want to stay seated, that's okay too. Uh, um, we're just going to say it all honors Jesus this morning because we're mutually submitting to the word of God today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray while you guys find Colossians chapter 1. 
Lord, thank you for your word, which tells us about you and your love for us. It tells us about the way life is best lived in relationship with you and with one another. As we read your word, and, and more than just read it, Lord, we would actually be hearers and doers of the things that we take in from your word this morning. May we submit to what this is telling us, because it is from your heart to ours this morning. And even if it's challenging, even if it presses against our comfort zone, even if we don't like what it says, would you help us understand it more? Would you help us engage with you a little bit more? Would you help us wrestle with these truths so that when we leave today, we might have taken one step further in engaging our faith than we did when we showed up this morning. We submit ourselves to you now in the hope that you would change us and make us more like yourself. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Paul wrote this letter to the church, uh, um, well, in well, it's Colossians church, okay? So that hard, I mean... It's titled that way, so I mean, I guess I don't have to explain it in 12 sentences. It's to the church there. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, meaning God willed that Paul would do this. They had called him, right, and do this. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. That dude is the pastor there. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray from you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? In him, we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And now this next part. In the original language, it's a poem. It's like a hymn. It's like one of the most beautiful things in Scripture that was ever written, and it describes Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. If you want to know who we believe Jesus to be, this will tell you. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he is preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord for you this morning, and you may be seated. This is a powerful chapter. It would take me a long time to preach through the book of Colossians. It's not a very long book. It's like, this is it. Okay, my Bible? That's, that's what, one and a half pages? It would take me probably a good six to eight weeks to preach through that one and a half pages because of the amount of awesomeness that's packed up in there. Okay? There is so much that you can unpack in this book. We're going to just look at the theme that is in this first chapter. The fact that there is a church, there is a head of a church, and that there are people in the church. Okay? This is a broad understanding that we get from this chapter. That, that let's, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Two kingdoms exist in our world. Kingdom of darkness, right? Kingdom of his beloved son. When you profess faith in Christ Jesus, you trust that his death on the cross was in your place for your sins. You then are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, wee, all the way over here. I don't, maybe that's a sound effect. I don't know. It was exciting when it happened to me. Okay, um, and then you're over here in the kingdom of light. Okay, they're run completely differently. They're under two completely different models of existence. The kingdom of darkness. Well, when you're in it, you don't necessarily think it's dark, right? In fact, you think it's pretty great because it's all about you, right? Um, and so if you decide you want to do something, you do it. Even if it hurts other people, that's okay. It's about you. Kingdom of darkness is about satisfying the flesh and every desire that you have. You just do what feels good in the moment. The kingdom of his beloved son is different. Scripture tells us, that the kingdom of the beloved son has a king. That's obvious, right? Jesus. And he's the head over this kingdom. And he administers this kingdom. And he brings rulers up and takes them down. He puts stuff into creation and he takes stuff out of creation. He can do whatever he wants because he's God, right? And what he wants to do is bring people from that kingdom to that kingdom. Big open door policy. Anybody can come, right? There's only one thing that you need to know. This kingdom uh, really doesn't have any boundaries or borders. It kind of ebbs and flows into all areas of our heart and mind and soul. This kingdom has one boundary. Faith in Jesus. If you want to be part of the kingdom of the beloved son, you must profess faith in Christ Jesus. You must recognize that he died in your place on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty, you didn't. You get grace. And that just like pulls you, transfers you right out of darkness into light. Anyone, anyone, open door policy, can love Jesus and enter this kingdom. 
right? That's so cool, right? It's a, anybody's welcome, all you gotta do is love and trust Jesus. That's so cool. Nobody is excluded no matter what. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, all the things that happened in that kingdom. Christ forgives you, loves you, transfers you to this kingdom. Now, when you're in this kingdom, you suddenly realize that the head of the kingdom is no longer you. That's the hardest reality, right? The hardest reality is realizing I don't get to call all the shots anymore. The, the hardest reality is suddenly there's a king that's saying, I know what's best for you if you will but live according to my will, right? So this king administers his kingdom. He knows what's best for his kingdom. He puts boundaries around his kingdom. And he says, there are people in my kingdom and I know them. A king has a kingdom and subjects, right? And it's not that much different in our churches. Jesus is the head of the church, capital C church, meaning anybody in the whole entire world who professes faith in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter whether you live in America or you live in Africa or you live in South America, anywhere on the whole face of the planet, if you profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are part of the capital C church. And that means it doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Nazarene or Pentecostal or Assembly of God, or it doesn't matter. You trust Jesus died in your place on the cross for your sins, part of the capital C church and you have a king over you who loves you, right? But within the capital C church, there are a lot of little C churches, okay? Little C churches are just local congregations, little groupings of people who belong to the capital C church, right? Little groupings of people that happen to be in localities, right? So we happen to be a church in Ketchikan, right? We're a little C church. We belong to the big body of believers, but we are a local congregation. Now, when we read this, this uh, passage in Colossians, um, he's writing to a specific church, okay? He's not saying to everybody in the whole world who believes. He's saying to the Colossians, to the church in this city, to the specific members of this church, specifically to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at this church. Now, he did it for other churches like the church at Philippi and the church at Ephesus and the church in Galatia, right? He's writing to specific local churches. And he's pointing out, listen, greet the saints. Y'all know who you are. You hang out on a regular basis. So when you get my letter, make sure that you let everybody in the church know I love them and I'm praying for them. Right? Paul's a, a good pastor. And then he says, listen. You've learned the gospel from your pastor, Epaphras. He's your pastor. He's taught you good things. Keep learning from him. And keep walking and being increased in the glory of God. Because don't forget, he transferred you from this kingdom to this kingdom. You belong to a different kingdom now. You are a member of the body of Christ of which Christ is the head. I guess I, there we go, there we go. The body, catch up. Everybody who loves Jesus is part of the body of Christ. But we are called not just to be part of the body of Christ and isolated, but part of the body of Christ and connected. Um, that means that we need a local body of believers. 
1 um, Corinthians reads this way, um, and, and I, I'm using the message version. I don't study from this version, okay? And I don't recommend studying from this version because uh, you need a different kind of translation to study from, NIV, ESV, NASB, better. The message, it, it conveys the heart of the passage really well. And I really like how this is phrased because there's no confusion in this passage, okay? This talks about the local body of believers. Can you imagine the eye telling the hand, get lost, I don't need you. Or the head telling the foot, you're fired. Your job has been phased out. It's silly, right? You guys are laughing. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part of the body, the more the basic it is. Therefore, the more necessary it is. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. And when it's part of your own body, you're concerned with it. And it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is without comparisons. And if anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher parts. And if you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? I love how this phrases it. <laughs> but who would choose full-bodied hair over good digestion? Okay. Do you know... Like the base level parts of your brain are parts that you don't think about working, but are automated, right? You never see them, you never think about them, but they keep your heart beating and they keep your breathy parts breathing, right? <laughs> I wouldn't trade those parts for anything because I desperately need them. That's what this passage is saying. No one part is better than the other. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. I love that sentence. Every part is dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every part is involved in the hurt. Can I get an amen from someone who stubbed their toe in the middle of the night on a coffee table? Amen. Right? <laughs> huh. One part hurts, every part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. That's key. And if one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. There's this picture that Jesus has for our church. It's that we work together like our body works together. No one part of our body can say, I'm done with that other part, right? That's bad when that happens. We end up in the hospital when that happens, right? If it's bad enough, we can end up on life support or dying when that happens. That is not how God designed the church to be. He administers, he is the head, he is the thinky, administrative, smarty part, right, of the body. And he administers the rest of his body for the glory of his kingdom. And whether we are a foot or an eye or a skin cell, you know, it, we're all the body, and we all need each other, right? Um, in, uh, I'm going to give you guys a couple different verses. I don't have them up on the screen here, so if you take notes, you can just follow along and, and double-check my references later. The scriptures tell us that it's not enough that we just belong to the global body of believers, but that we are accountable to a local body of believers, 
And over and over and over in scripture, we get this idea, not where it says, look at the list of church membership. It doesn't say that. But what it does do is list out members. Have you guys ever read Romans chapter 16, 1 through 16? Nobody? Y'all ought to read the book of Romans sometime. Um, Romans chapter 16, 1 through 16. Paul is writing to the church. And 1 through 16 is a list of church members. You ever thought about that? When you read names in scripture like this, he's listing out the members of that specific church. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her wherever she may need from you because she has been a patron of many of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, the fellow workers in Christ. They risk their necks for my life. Greet also the church in their house. They're meeting in homes. And then I'm not going to do this because I messed it up in first service. There are too many names that I cannot pronounce, but it's 16 verses of names. Greet Bob, right? Greet Hank. Greet Susie. Greet Timothy. Greet Lisa. Greet Nancy. Greet so forth and so on, right? Greet them all because Paul is saying, I know them because they are part of the local body. There is a pastor who writes to me and tells me about his people in the church and how he loves for them and cares for them. There is a specific membership list for a church. And if you read in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples at Pentecost, it says daily people were being added to their number by the thousands in many cases. But do you know they were keeping track of that? They were keeping track of membership in the body of Christ. And then if you read in Acts chapter 6, there's this problem in the church where the church has grown and there's some divisions and some angst and some uh, you're taking better care of some people than other people kind of stuff going on. So the leaders of the local church get together and say, oh, that's not great. Uh, we need some more people to help sort this stuff out. We need some people in charge. We need more help. Why don't we gather together the church, the local church, and have them elect from their own membership people who they see the fruits of the spirit and leadership giftings in, and we'll set those people to take care of this stuff. The local church, local, gathers together to elect leaders from its own membership to oversee the ministries and keep the members accountable. This is God's plan. It's in the book of Acts. When the church was just getting started, they were fledgling in their existence as a church. And already God was saying, um, yeah, everybody who loves me is in the body of Christ. But in local groupings, you're going to need to know who your members are. You're going to need to use those members to um, uh, install leaders. And those leaders and members are going to have to work together. This is God's picture for the body of Christ. Well, then we get to this idea of leadership. Jesus is obviously the head of the church, right? He's in charge. In fact, he is the pastor of this church. In case you didn't know, I'm just the under pastor. I'm the associate pastor. I'm the under shepherd of this church. Jesus is my boss. He's the one that guides and leads us as leaders in this church. And we guide and lead according to his will. I am not the head pastor here. 
I am just the under-shepherd. And I have to remember that, right? Because Jesus is the head of the church, not Peter, praise the Lord. We would be in a mess. We'd tell more silly jokes. That's what we would do. <laughs> Leaders in the church are responsible for specific people. As an under-shepherd in the church, I am not responsible for the church membership next door. I'm not responsible for any of the Nazarene churches on this district and the great state of Alaska. I'm not responsible for believers in Zimbabwe. I am responsible and biblically accountable for the members of this church. That's what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that I am responsible, pastorally accountable, for the people who have bound themselves to this church. Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. This is talking to the leadership, to the pastors and the board members of a church. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. The Lord positions leaders. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, if there's a verse that carries any kind of like gulp in my throat and, you know, dropping in my stomach, it's Jesus saying, I love my church more than you'll ever know. I died on the cross to make her holy and blameless. I need to go sit in heaven and administer all kinds of things for a while. So, Peter, I'm going to give you my precious church and catch a can. Don't screw it up. Right? Leaders read this verse and, and read, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The thing that Jesus values the most is his children. And he says, leaders, you need to know that I'm entrusting you with my people. The specific people I draw to your church. The specific people that bind themselves in membership and commit to serving and giving and loving and forgiving and extending forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. I'm not pastorally accountable for everybody else. I'm pastorally accountable for this church. And that helps, right? Because it would be hard for one person to be pastorally accountable for hundreds and thousands and millions of people. That's why God puts leaders over local churches. It continues in Hebrews to say this, have confidence in your leaders. Now this is talking to the people. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. That's a dirty word, right? Submit, nobody likes that word. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. You should submit to them, do this, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, because that will be no benefit to you. This is a mutual thing here. I shepherd you with the love of Jesus as he enables me. You submit to the leadership, and together that all brings glory to God. This is how God designs his church to work. Now, the next part of this is the challenging part. The part that pastors don't like to preach on, the part that people don't like to hear. It's why we don't necessarily advertise when we're preaching on this. In fact, I know some pastors who will actually title a sermon like something completely random so that people don't stay away from church on days when this is talked about. Right? Nobody likes this. But this is so beneficial. In Scripture, it says the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So if you are not receiving discipline from the Lord, there's a problem with your walk with Jesus. 
And leaders, if we don't know who is in our church, we do not know who to discipline. Get another understanding that when God says leaders have the ability, the biblical mandate to discipline, we actually have to know who's in our church so that we can do that. I don't just walk onto the street and grab a random person waiting at the bus stop, right? You heathen sinner, right? It doesn't work like that. That's not going to lead anybody anywhere, right? But within the church, I have the ability with the love of God and with the counsel of leaders to keep people accountable in love, right? Never grabbing people, by the way. That never works. Don't ever do that, okay? Yeah, all, whatever. Moms can do all kinds of discipline that way, right? So I give Nia permission. She can... (laughs) Um, Discipline is good and healthy, for the individual and the church as a whole. First Corinthians reads this way. I wrote you in my earlier letter that you shouldn't make yourselves at home among the sexually promiscuous. Good advice. Don't make your home there. But I don't mean that you should have nothing at all to do with outsiders of that sort or with crooks or whether blue or white collars or, you know, spiritual phonies for that matter. Uh, You'd actually have to leave the world entirely to never hang out with people who sin, right? But I am saying that you shouldn't act as if everything is just fine when a friend who claims to be a Christian is promiscuous or crooked or flip with God or rude to friends or gets drunk or becomes greedy and predatory. I like how this is phrased. You shouldn't act as if everything is fine when there is sin in the body of Christ. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. Remember, Christ died to make the church holy. We don't have the authority to say, I'm going to permit sin. We don't have that authority. I'm not responsible for what the outsiders do. But don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? God decides on the outsiders. But we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line, and if necessary... Clean house. Anybody like that verbiage? That's biblical. But it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Church discipline is this really challenging thing that, for the most part, churches in America don't do. Because, A, we don't hold membership the same way that God would have us do. And, B, we would rather have growing numbers than healthy disciples. That's cultural Christian America. Comfort over obedience. That's not what we want for our lives. We want obedience. Even if it brings a little discomfort along the way, we want to look more like Jesus at the end of the day than we did at the beginning of the day. Matthew 18 gives us some very clear guidelines for how church discipline needs to break down. And it's not as scary as you all think it might be because um, when it says clean house, I mean, that's... Well, you kind of get this mental idea of kicking someone to the curb, right? And that is an option. That is in the tool belt of leaders in a church. We have the biblical authority to remove someone from church membership, though permit them to stay in the body, family. We also have the authority to remove someone from the congregation as a whole and say, no, you're... Actions, behaviors, words, whatever it may be, is so harmful that we can't have you as part with us on Sunday mornings. We'll partner with you, we'll disciple you, we'll love you, but not here on a Sunday morning until there's a change of heart and repentance. 
But that's not the first step. Everybody always thinks that's the first step, right? That's not the first step. The first step reads like this. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. You work it out between the two of you. And if he listens, you've made a friend. Is not that ideal? If we live just this, would that not be the best way to live? But how often do we let gripes and grumbles and bitterness take root? And we just don't have the simple conversation. We just have the simple conversation and, and make a friend in the process. But if you won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest, right? So that in the heat of the emotion, you're not yelling and they're not yelling, and then it gets all angry and disgusting again, right? You take a third party to help you navigate those waters, right? And try again. And if you still won't listen, then tell the church. This is, this is where it gets into heavy discipline. And I'll tell you, from a church discipline standpoint, this is probably... You gotta work hard to get here. Six, eight months of working with someone before you reach this point. You gotta know that they are unwilling to move in their sin before you get to this point. This is heavy. You bring them before the church. We tried. We tried with a few people. We've mentored, we've prayed, we've, we've lavished grace, we've worked hard, and they are still sinning. If you won't listen to the church, you have to start over from scratch. Confront them with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. This idea that if someone at this point is so hard-hearted in their sin, perhaps they are in this kingdom. And not the kingdom that we thought they were in. Perhaps they've never really trusted Christ. We need to treat those people then with love. With respect. They are image bearers of Christ but they need to be held accountable for sin and if they're going to claim Christ we need to treat them the way Christ would want sin treated this far and no further we love you come and participate in the body of Christ but we cannot permit this kind of sin to destroy the unity of the body offer again God's forgiving love do you see how discipline is not an angry thing but discipline is a restoring thing Discipline is a reconciling thing. Discipline is a beautiful thing, not a bad thing. We shouldn't fear discipline. It's good and healthy for the individual and the believer. And if the church is going to grow in health, then the church must practice discipline. Um, I'm going to close with this uh, little thought here, and uh, the worship team will come and lead us. Church membership is hard, this idea. Um, because it means that you, as an individual believer, must leave the comfort of your individualism. I'm not saying give up your identity. I'm not saying forget who you are and become a mindless drone. I'm saying your comfort doing things the way you like to do things, independently. You leave that behind and you voluntarily bind yourself to a group of people who are going the direction of Jesus, right? Why do we do that? Why do we phrase it like that, leaving our own comfort behind and voluntarily binding ourselves towards others? It's because it's a picture of the gospel. It is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was in heaven, and he joyfully, willingly gave up his own comfort and bound himself to humanity for our good. If he can do it, he will enable us to do it. 
It's also a question of biblical obedience. Are you willing to be obedient to the word of God? Or would you rather personal preference win out? That's what it really boils down to. You've just heard a message from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. To learn more about our church or to support our ministries, you can visit ktnnaz.org. Thank you.